Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm joined by Frederick Yatch from our Investable Indices Group, and I'm really looking forward to diving deep into the past with him, exploring why he thinks it's so important to learn from history and to leverage history in formulating alpha signals. So, Frederick, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Eloise. It's great to be here again. I guess we should explain a bit of context to our listeners before we really kick off. So, Frederick, you and I caught up on this podcast series back in September last year. And I have to say, I found it a really fascinating conversation discussing the sources of market inefficiency and sources of alpha that you identify in markets and how you go about creating signals to capitalize on them. And indeed, back in September, you also walked through your Strategic Index Fundamental Toolkit, our SIFT dataset, which I'm sure we'll touch on again today. Certainly so, yes, hopefully. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the latest on your workflow. And I know you have this new dataset, the Time Traveller, which we'll explore in due course too. So because there's a lot of ground to cover, we're recording this podcast in two parts. The first covering the backdrop to your work and your philosophy behind understanding and exploring market moves and finding alpha signals. And then the second part, really diving a bit more into your time traveler data set and what it means for markets today. So let's kick off with part one. So, Frederick, the general theme of this discussion is a look back in time. And your latest data set, as I mentioned, is called the Time Traveller. So, can you start by explaining why you think focusing on history and analysing history is so important? I've always been very intrigued by history and the fact that a lot of things change. But in my opinion, even more things stayed the same. So, certainly... A lot of things have changed and a lot of market patterns have have essentially changed. Short-term patterns are not similar today as they were back in the day. And essentially, if you're a quant, I think it's a sort of gravitate towards looking at short-term patterns rather than long-term patterns. I started my career in a pension fund where long-term doesn't mean a year ahead. It means very, very long-term ahead. And that puts a different perspective. So I definitely think that information is valuable. But the big question is whether or not history is relevant. Is it relevant to look at what happened 50 and 60 years ago versus today? Regulation is different and uh, some patterns are different. Information, was that more scarce 60 years ago than today? Yes, definitely. But I would even argue that with this enormous flow of information that we have today, people are basically drowning in all of that data. So Eloise, what do you think about history? Do you think it's relevant? Oh, wow. Well, I'm biased by our prior discussion, but I would say I think that it is. Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain things that are probably irrelevant. Short-term behavior in markets change. Mean reversion patterns back in the 60s and 70s or even 1920s, they can't be compared to today because it's cheaper to trade, it's easier to trade, it's different. So those are uncomparable. But if we take that step back and think humans as a whole in markets, have we changed? Materially, I don't think we have. I mean, I think there is a 
misconception, if you will, that just because we have all of these technology today and we have all of this information that flows back and forth, that we are in some sense more intelligent, that we are a sort of peak civilization at the moment. And I don't think we are, but I do think that back in the day, people were just as intelligent as we are today. And maybe even this enormous amount of information that flows to us is just making us drown in information. And at the same time, we can think of, have we gotten better at the rudimentary task of being in the market, predicting something? That's what we're trying to do here. Have we become better at predicting, say, inflation 60 years ago from now? I don't think so. And growth? Definitely not. And we can even do something very crude and say that market volatility, that would be a very crude metric of if we are able to predict the future. Not just predict the future prices, but future earnings, everything that affects markets. And actually, because, I mean, in the end, if you're surprised, that will lead to volatility. And actually, if we go back to the 1950s and 60s, that's when we saw lowest volatilities. Obviously, I'm not going to claim that people were more efficient back then, but there is no proof that we have gotten better at actually predicting the future. That's absolutely fascinating, your view that some things never change and that analysing the long term is helpful. And the idea that we haven't necessarily got better at predicting many variables, including inflation. And I hear you on that. But where I'm less sure is that we haven't got better at predicting shorter term moves. And as an example, I was interviewing global macroeconomist Anna Stupnitska on this series about a month ago, and she was arguing that the toolkits available to macroeconomists have got so much better in the last five years because macroeconomists now have access to so much real-time or recent data around restaurant bookings, footfall, flights. And she was arguing that actually it's becoming much easier or economists can get much more accurate at forecasting things like monthly PMIs now than even 10 years ago, which I thought was fascinating. So is it true that perhaps we're no better at forecasting longer term phenomena, but we are better at forecasting the near term? What's your take? I think that's definitely the case. Like look at now costing for for, for macro as you're, you're speaking about, didn't exist back in the 60s and 70s and 1990s. And that's definitely been a big change on sort of shorter term patterns. But does that really change the way we trade markets in the longer term? I mean, it's ultimately a question whether or not all these small changes in the economy and in the microeconomy, if that just in the end turns out to be the long term, if you integrate all of that, will that be the long term? And I don't think it is because in the end... There will be small parts of evidence. Let's say that there's a recession coming. There won't be just news that recession is coming. There will be small pieces of evidence that come along the way. And those aren't just going to come one day. So I do not think that just an integration of all of those short-term patterns are going to lead to something longer term. Yes, that makes sense to me. So how do you think about short-term versus long-term alphas? Is it true, for example, that the market may be getting more efficient at isolating short-term inefficiencies and capitalizing on short-term alphas. And perhaps that is a development that we've witnessed, but the market is no better at capitalizing on these longer-term alphas. 
What I can say is I think it's at least seemed to be easier to be short-term the last couple of years with the inflow of new alternative data sets that can be fairly high frequency. But also there is a bit of these data sets coming to market after hedge funds have already been looking at them and been trading them for, for quite some time. I'm not going to say that it's crowded, but given that this information has been sort of taken into account by different hedge funds for an extended period of time, there is at least the risk of some of these patterns being essentially arbitraged away or even turning into negative territory and uh, essentially disappearing. That's really interesting. That does resonate. When we think about the growth in use of machine learning techniques and potentially AI, how do you feel that impacts your thoughts around long-term inefficiencies and longer-term alphas? Because couldn't you also argue that many investors now have access to longer-term data and they can more readily apply machine learning techniques to learn from that longer-term history? And therefore, even that space could be becoming more crowded. Definitely. But we certainly don't see that happening. People are still focusing on the medium to short-term, partially because it's probably simpler. If you, if you think about it from a sort of mathematical or statistical perspective, rather, if you're predicting something that's very near term, you have a lot of data that flows in, but it's actually a fairly small problem. The cross-sectional information that flows into the problem is pretty small. Like if you're looking at intraday trading, you're looking at essentially the price. It's just one piece of information and you can obviously transform that in different ways, but it's a small cross-section of information. But if you're predicting one month ahead, there is an enormous amount of information that flows in at different times as well. And if you really want to treat that problem, you probably need to have all of that information in front of you, which is more difficult. And it leads to a potentially more complex problem to solve. Then at the same time, even if we are looking at, say, 60 years of data, it's actually a sparse problem. So the model we can have, we can, I mean, we cannot apply chat GPT level models here because they will have billions of parameters and we only have essentially a few thousand data points to learn from. And that puts a strain, if you will, on, on the modeling techniques. Absolutely. And it's definitely true that many of the data sets that I discuss with clients and indeed that our team has come up with, actually, many of those data sets don't have that much history. I think social media is a brilliant example, a very rich source of data that we do find some predictive power in and has been very relevant since the retail investor has really picked up their share of volumes in the US since COVID. But of course, by definition, not a lot of history for those sorts of data sets. So I absolutely hear you that with data sets like that, and a lot of textual data sets, we don't have that much history and we can't necessarily learn from the 1960s and the 1970s, as you referred to earlier. So, I mean, in building any model and, and understanding what you can expect from those models, it's always a discussion of the degrees of freedom of the problem and the degrees of freedom, essentially, of the information you're putting in. So let's just take a very simplistic example. If you have a model, a general model, and it can be applied to any asset, and it's equally good at predicting each and every one of those asset returns. And now let's say that those assets are also uncorrelated. Then just by the theory of it, if you have a thousand assets you can trade, you will have, in theory, square root of a thousand times higher Sharpe ratio. Yes. So let's say that that model is either on equities or on single stock alpha or the idiosyncratic stock returns. Then in theory, you will be experiencing or hopefully experiencing a lot higher sharp ratios in, in single stocks than what you will be able to make in, in the overall equity market. 
But it's also the same thing with the time you need to evaluate something. So if you're trading a thousand uncorrelated assets, you will essentially have the history you're looking at, which may be an evaluation history of, of 10 years or so. That's essentially that times a thousand because they're uncorrelated. Now, doesn't really work like that in, in, in reality. But if you're looking at the overall equity market, well, then what you're actually trying to do is just to predict the cycle, one cycle, which is then very, very difficult, essentially from a mathematical angle, impossible to evaluate. You would need to wait 50, yes. 60 years before you can actually experience enough of those cycles to be able to, to understand if the model is yes. actually valuable. So if I'm understanding you correctly, if you want to create a market timing signal rather than a single stock timing signal, really your point is you need much more history than just 10 years worth of history. Definitely, definitely. Because, I mean, if we think that markets are going to repeat themselves, it's going to be by the fact that not everyone in the market knows exactly what's going to happen and that knowledge isn't just perfect in the collective of every investor. I do think that things repeat themselves, but it's not going to repeat themselves, so I say, 10 or 20 years. So the GFC, if the same sort of prerequisites show themselves today, we're not going to end up in the same scenario because regulation have changed. We knew what happened. And therefore, I know that everyone else knows exactly what happened. So it's not going to play out the same. But if we find a scenario that is similar to, say, something that happened in the 1970s or 1980s, most investors don't have the experience of actually being there. And most investors aren't actually that interested in history to actually have the knowledge, if you will, learned into their memory. Which means that essentially, if that is true, then it can essentially repeat itself or at least be similar. Yes. And therein lies your point, I assume, that the longer term, the longer run market inefficiencies can be that much greater because they're less exploited for the reasons you just identified. Exactly. And the reasons you identified were lack of experience among fund managers, lack of interest among fund managers. What about lack of high quality data? What's your view on the quality of data that is available on the 1950s, the 1960s, etc.? I mean, it will always be lower quality. There will always be revisions to macro data, as an yeah. example. And looking back in, in the 1950s and 60s, it's going to be very difficult to see exactly what data was available at that time. Like if you look at GDP numbers, it can be heavy revisions and it can look completely different if you're observing that 10 years after it was actually released. That's something we try to take into account. So when we do our analysis, as an example, we use the JP Max data, which is a collaboration between JP Morgan and a firm called MacroSynergy, where we have point-in-time macro data with quite a long history. But we also then use the SIF data to understand the fundamentals and prices in equity markets that are what could be seen at that time. That's a brilliant point. The idea that longer term data is not necessarily that readily available, not necessarily that accurate. It suffers a lot of revisions, but that is precisely why you've leveraged the JP Max data set and then your SIFT data set, Strategic Index Fundamental Toolkit, as a way to have higher quality data and edge ultimately in analysing the longer term. Is that right? Yeah. I know that we spoke about the SIFT dataset back in September, but for those listeners who didn't listen to that or who can't remember the details, is it worth, Frederick, just spending a few minutes on exactly what you've done there? Yeah, so the, the, the overall idea is to give ease of access to long-term high-quality equity data. And we're talking about that on an aggregated level. Uh, we're talking about breakdowns of the equity market into regions and, and countries and 
sectors and industry groups and even yeah. factors. That is typically quite difficult because if you want to have long-term history, you will then sacrifice a little bit on quality of data. But we don't want to make that sacrifice and we don't want to make a product and a data set that is essentially biased with look-ahead bias or, or survivorship bias or anything like that. So we've compiled together several different sources in order to create a data set that basically covers any type of breakdown you could basically ever think of. So we, we cover 20,000 different indices in there that are your obvious like global equities, but also you can go in and see value in a certain sector, in a certain region or in a certain country. Why? Well, it depends on what analysis you're going to do. And if you want to analyze, as an example, the expected return on factors, then will you then use 20 years history? I wouldn't do so. I would probably think that we would need more history than that, maybe 40, 50 years history in order to understand that if you have different macro regimes or, or different characteristics within the fundamentals of a factor, you would need the history in order to see enough different points, essentially, to compare yeah. to where we are today. But it's not just that. I mean, we have the indices, but we also have the point-in-time fundamentals for the indices, ranging from like earnings to debt levels to investment information as well. Absolutely amazing how much data you have there and you make it available to our clients. Ever since you launched that data set, where have you taken it since? How have you found commercial value in this? So one of the major areas where we applied the, the SIFT is the so-called time traveler product. So with this initiative, we're trying to build an engine to be able to characterize the economy and then to extract value from the past. Essentially, it can be used for tactical or strategical asset allocation, say timing of industry groups or timing of overall markets. So interesting. I can't wait to ask you more about this in part two, including what your toolkit and your data set says about markets today. But we'll come to that in due course. And when you analyze your SIFT data set in conjunction with the JP Max data set that you mentioned earlier, what tools are you using or what techniques are you using? Are you leveraging machine learning, for example? I'm just thinking there's such a vast volume of data for you to analyze. How do you even go about that? So machine learning is a very wide term, obviously. I think when people think about machine learning, they think about something very, very complex with a, a lot of different parameters, almost like a black box. And that's something that we certainly want to do, avoid. We still use machine learning in the sense that we are learning from markets. Machine learning, in the end, is just a statistical technique to be adaptive, to be dynamic. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. But we don't want to have a black box. We want it to be built from an investment logic or from an economical logic. If people open up Bloomberg and look at the graph, they jump to the conclusion, I guess, maybe, that a financial market or a financial time series is actually a time series. And that then boils down to the idea that you will then have price that leads to price. And the only thing that really matters is the momentum and all of that. Momentum is important, but I think there is so much more to be had. And I think essentially the market is non-chronological. What happens is you have different regimes and different events that just jump from one to another. And then that produces a time series, but it doesn't mean that what's actually going on is just a time series that plays out. So we, we call this non-chronological learning, that we're essentially looking at regimes and events rather than looking at the time as a continuous spectrum that evolves. Fascinating. And I always think that as quants and data scientists, we 
perhaps overuse backtesting and overuse the concept that we're going to repeat a pattern using history rather than analysing regimes or cross-sectional analysis, for example. And perhaps the advent of more readily available machine learning tools can take us away from this obsession with time series, backtesting type techniques. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in my overall book of work, ML is a very big part of it. And you can think of classical quant strategies. It's very easy to overfit them using backtesting because essentially you choose the best parameter. But did you really know that you were going to do that 20 years back? It's very difficult to motivate and it's very easy to also believe that there's a story behind all of these choices, that storytelling essentially just takes over. The reason why I use machine learning in general is not due to the complexity that you can get out from it. It's actually the fact that we can be unbiased, that let's say we have an accurate representation of data at point T, and that data was broad, and that it was essentially what was available at that time. If you have a model that can be adaptive and learn, then you have the ability to create something that is essentially unbiased. Thank you. That makes sense. So you referred to momentum earlier, and I think you referred to classical quant strategies. And of course, academic literature would take us back decades, showing that momentum, value, growth, perhaps, earnings momentum, perhaps, have historically displayed some form of alpha or perhaps risk premia. I don't know how you'd categorize that. Do you believe that those forms of alpha still exist? And how do you believe that your techniques using this very long run data that you've spent so long creating differ from those techniques? Definitely. I, I'm a long-term believer in risk premia. And the key word here is long-term because I think it's a long-term investment strategy and not something that has the ability or should be seen as having the ability to deliver quick gains, if you will. When institutional investors started to heavily look at the risk premium in the Nordic region in 2013 and a little bit before that as well, it was easy to jump to the conclusion that risk premium was the savior because most backtests back then had sharp ratios of two or, or even upwards to three. Obviously, if that was true, it would have been the perfect investment strategy. We could have closed down everything. It didn't turn out to be that way. But I certainly don't see that as a proof of it being arbitraged away. It can, there can obviously be crowding in the space. But my point is that if you were able to look beyond the 10-year backtests we had available back then, and you looked back to the 80s and 70s and even further than that, you could see that it's a sharp one strategy. And having that in mind, what happened after 2014 and different developments and different strategies it's actually just in line with long-term performance. There's obviously been a lot of academic research behind risk premia going back decades. And one would assume that there are more players capitalizing on the inefficiencies or the risk premiums that exist today than, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago. Does that mean that they get crowded out or that the alphas wane? You referred, Frederick, to the fact that risk premia alphas have certainly waned in the last five or 10 years. What do you think? I mean, obviously, it can be crowded. And I think that during the last 10 years, there have been points where this field has been quite crowded, to be fair. But the big question is whether or not risk premia exists if we don't know about it or even if we know about it. So look at those academical research papers that go back 60 years looking at quality metrics. That wasn't widely available to markets. People 
typically, probably, didn't look at those types of metrics in the 1970s, but still they performed. And then if it performs today, is it just because we know that it should be as a sort of a hen and the egg situation? I tend to believe that these will be here regardless of if we know about them or not. An example of that would be, let's take my local market, the Swedish market. It's an equity market that is quite dominated by home buyers. Many pension funds, as an example, have a large home buyers and a lot of Swedish retail investors mainly invest in Sweden. And in typical business news, you will never ever hear about value or momentum or quality or anything like that. You will probably hear about dividend yield, but that's a different theme. But the thing is, if you analyze that market, it behaves in a certain way, just similar to, to every other market when it comes to factors. So if we take a step back, I know we'll be wrapping up part one soon and moving on to part two, where we really deep dive into your time traveler data set. But the messages I've really heard from you today, Frederick, is that longer term alphas, and by long term, I'm talking multiple decades, those alphas still exist, aren't necessarily more arbitrage today than was the case historically. If we think about a lot of the developments in data and data science over the last decade, they haven't necessarily really fully tapped into the longer term in the way that they probably have tapped into the last five or 10 years. And therefore, your belief for a number of reasons, technology, but also availability of longer term data, age of investors, experience and inclination of investors, is that there still exists somewhat rich sources of alpha if you look back into the longer term. Is that right? Definitely. And I think just by the virtue of very few quants looking at the long term, it's, uh, it's definitely valuable to be there and looking at it from a different angle. Brilliant. And I guess the message to our audience and our listeners and the investing side is that you have developed a number of data sets to attempt to have a clearer vision of what the long run history is. Your SIFT data set, Strategic Index Fundamental Toolkit, goes back to the early 1960s, I think. Yes. And that showcases this full suite of fundamental and factor data. Over 20,000 indices, I think you said. 20,000 indices and then you have basically 40 different metrics for every index, you can get lost, properly lost. That's incredible. And then on top of that, you referenced the JP Max dataset, which, as you said, is generated by JP Morgan in collaboration with a company called Macro Synergy, which specifically goes back also to the long run, but looks at macro data and the as-of data sets, data points of those macro data series. So I guess the combination of the two should be a very rich, powerful data source from which to derive alpha signals. Is that right? Definitely. It gives us the ability to understand what information was available at what point in time, which is essentially what we're trying to do with our analysis. We're trying to pinpoint different parts of the history and different regimes. And the only way you can accurately describe that this is a regime is by understanding what people knew at that time. So before we wrap up, Frederick, are there any final messages you want to leave our audience? And also, how does our audience access the SIFT dataset that you've mentioned so many times today? I think the key takeaway from my side is dare to look where people generally don't look. If everyone focuses in one direction, regardless of if that offers you amazing returns, at least on paper, it yeah. may be worthwhile to look somewhere else. Uh, so the SIF dataset, it's available through the JP Morgan Data Query, which is a platform where you can access data, both in a sort of visual format where you can plot 
JPMAX data and then compare it to things from SIFT. But you can also have an API as an example. If you're a quant, you can extract it straight into Python with ease. Great. And in terms of accessing documentation around your SIFT data set and contacting us, please do look at our podcast show notes. We'll have some links there. So thank you so much, Frederick. This was a really fascinating discussion, as I was expecting, in terms of your work delving into the past and identifying alpha signals. So let's leave it there and we'll pick up with part two soon. Thank you. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. We'd love to hear feedback on our content and to hear about other topics you'd like covered. So if you do have feedback or questions or you'd like to explore any of this content further, please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, J.P. Morgan... They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.